This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. It's not humiliation. It's about a sense of vulnerability, which is different than a humiliation. They feel defenseless. They feel vulnerable. And I think that is why you're seeing this massive outpouring in the country, this incredible unity in the country. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping our world. I'm Mike Cosper, and I'm joined today by Russell Moore. This special edition of the show is entirely focused on making sense of what's happening right now in Israel. The bulk of our show will be a conversation with Robert Nicholson and Dan Senor, talking about what took place this weekend, what the real-life situation is now on the ground, and where things may be headed. Then, Russell and I will be joined by Daryl Bach, a New Testament scholar from Dallas Theological Seminary, to talk about how Christians can think about modern Israel and the Bible. Stay with us. Saturday, October 7th, Hamas, the terrorist organization that rules over Gaza, began firing thousands of rockets into Israel. Shortly after that, hundreds of terrorists affiliated with Hamas crossed the border and began a coordinated attack on homes, military bases, kibbutz, uh, music festival. The attacks were a terror campaign. They were sexually assaulting victims. They were kidnapping people. They were killing civilians, women, children, the elderly. We're now talking on Monday afternoon. It's been three days. As of this moment, we have more than 900 Israelis who are known to have died in the attacks. Hundreds more were injured, including injured critically. Israel has declared war on Hamas. They've begun a blockade of food and water into Gaza and air assaults in Gaza, promising a response that, according to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, will change the Middle East. The assault's already begun by air. Hamas has responded. They currently hold more than 100 hostages and have said that they will be killing hostages for each civilian house bombed without warning. All of that barely scratches the surface of the story that's been unfolding over the last several days. Joining us for a conversation about what's been happening are Dan Senor. Dan was an official in the Bush administration. He's the host of the podcast Call Me Back and a co-author of the New York Times bestseller Startup Nation. He's also the author of a forthcoming book called The Genius of Israel, The Surprising Resilience of a Divided Nation in a Turbulent World. Dan, welcome to The Bulletin. Thank you uh, for having me. Also joining us is Robert Nicholson, president and executive director of The Philos Project. Robert, welcome to The Bulletin. Thank you, Mike. It's good to be here. I wanted to begin with you, Dan. You had a remarkable conversation on your podcast yesterday with Haviv Retigur, a journalist in Israel, talking about what's happening on the ground. I believe you also have some family in Israel. And I'm wondering if I could ask, what are you hearing? What is the state of mind on the ground? What's happening in the country as we speak? Well, first of all, thanks again for this conversation and for your care and attention to this issue. I do have a lot of family in Israel. I have two sisters in Israel, one in Netanya, one in Jerusalem. And finally, my mother, who is 85 years old, lives in Jerusalem, and she moved to Israel in 2014. Some tried to persuade her, maybe not be the right time for someone her age to, to move to Israel, but she insisted on it, and she started a new life there. So just about everyone I know has a family member that's been called up or 
know someone who's been called up or tragically know someone who's has some connection to someone who's been killed in recent days. So I have obviously spoken to a lot of family and a lot of friends. I'm following it quite closely. You, you cited the podcast conversation I had with Haviv Ratikur a couple of days ago. I would say his conversation, why I found it so powerful, is because it expresses how just about every Israeli I speak to feels, which is combination of shock. Nobody seems to have seen this coming. And yet a sense of, how do I say this? this it's not humiliation. It's about a sense of vulnerability, which is different than a humiliation. Mm. They feel defenseless. They feel vulnerable. And I think that is why you're seeing this massive outpouring in the country, this incredible unity in the country. If you've been to Israel, uh, one of the things you, you notice right away, one of the things Israel is proud of in many ways is the extent of the security state, the extent to which they're ahead of things technologically, their intelligence is so good. This is sort of well-known stuff for years and years. And so the fact that something could happen on this scale and create so much havoc and take so long to be quashed by the IDF to get things back under control, that seems very, very stunning. How are people processing that? This is not the first time Israel has had a major military embarrassment, clearly a major error. Obviously, the 1973 Yom Kippur War, which was the 50-year anniversary, involved major errors, including errors about intelligence, interpretation of intelligence. Uh, after the 2006 Lebanon War, there were many errors made during that that war. And what you see, just using the Golda Meir experience in the Yom Kippur War, the Ehud Omer experience in the Lebanon War, Israel is a pretty robust accountability system. And after each of these wars, even wars that don't go as badly as those went, there's an intense accountability process, commissions established, investigations commenced. And these, for better or for worse, end careers, end political careers, end military careers, end intelligence careers. What I'm saying is there will be a process. There's no doubt to understand what went wrong here. Clearly, a lot went wrong. There was an intelligence failure, there was a military operational failure, and there was a, there was a leadership failure. But that's not today's business. Right now, Israel has been hit with, I would argue, the worst military invasion, the worst war in its history. First of all, more Jews died, were slaughtered this weekend than on any single day since the Holocaust, A. B, Israel has fought wars on its territory before, right? The 67 Six-Day War, the Yom Kippur War, Egypt and Syria invading during the Yom Kippur War, but they were not like this. Those were soldier to soldier, mostly fighting. Obviously, there were some civilian casualties, but it was mostly uniform to uniform. And it was a lot of the fighting were in parts of the country that were not heavily populated by civilians. There have been terrorist attacks in Israel that slaughtered civilians. But this was a terrorist organized military attack into civilian neighborhoods, 20 plus towns, neighborhoods, kibbutzim, going door to door, house to house, slaughtering people. I mean, the analogy I, I've been giving, I gave today on television in the U.S. was, and the numbers have escalated since then, I said it's the equivalent of seven 9-11s, but now it's more like eight, nine, or 10 9-11s on a single weekend, on a single day in Israel. So if you look at Israel's population, the U.S. population is 40 times that the size of Israel. 700, 800, 900, 1,000 Israelis killed. I mean, just do the math. It's astonishing. And imagine a 9-11 not only of that scale, but imagine a 9-11 that once the major attack is done, there are still terrorists running around and operating throughout the country, which is what was happening over the course of the last couple of days in something like 20 plus communities. And then on top of that, imagine if the terrorists manage 
to take a number of hostages, children, women, grandmothers, people in their 80s, and move them to another location that they control. This is just on a scale we've never seen before. Now, obviously, we can't go back to 1947 and tell the full history in a moment like this. But I wonder, maybe, Robert, if you could take us to someplace maybe in the mid-2000s. There was a significant change in the relationship between Israel and the Palestinians, the West Bank, Gaza, in the mid-2000s. It set up sort of a status quo that's been the status quo until now. I wonder if you could describe that a little bit for us and help listeners understand how we got to where we are. Sure. It's true. The most important year to point out is uh, 2005. 2005 was the year that Israel pulled out completely, disengaged completely from the Gaza Strip. So listeners probably have a sense of the map. There is uh, what you might think of as Israel proper. And then there are these two Palestinian territories, West Bank and the Gaza Strip. The idea since the 90s, once Palestinians came around and said, okay, we'll, we'll acknowledge that there's this thing called Israel and enter into some kind of negotiations toward the forming of a Palestinian state. Since then, the idea was that these two territories would become the state. After 9-11, the U.S. pushed to have a change in leadership to get rid of Yasser Arafat, who was uh, understood to be leading or at least helping to lead the Second Intifada. That was a big, important terror campaign that happened in the early 2000s. And they brought in a new leader, the current president of the PA, Mahmoud Abbas. And uh, the idea was that here was a fresh face, a new look, and that elections could be held, democracy could take hold, and that Palestinians would get to choose their own future. What ended up happening was a victory by Hamas at the polls. Uh, at this point, just to be a little bit reductionist about it, there's sort of two paths in Palestinian politics. One is the, the nationalist path, which is more secular, and Hamas brought in this religious, Islamist, uh, jihadist path, and they, and they won the elections. The Palestinian society broke down sort of into two sides, uh, Hamas waged an actual war, a mini war, in the, in the summer of 2007 and forced out the Palestinian Authority back to the West Bank. So how did we get here? Part of the story is that the Palestinians themselves have broken into two groups, one nationalist and willing, at least in theory, to negotiate, and then Hamas, which has taken an Islamist position dedicated in principle, explicitly, on paper, in black and white, to the destruction of the state of Israel. Obviously for Israel, this presents a problem. How do you negotiate with two parties? First of all, if you make peace with one, the other one will oppose it. And then how do you even begin to speak with an entity that is before you even get to the table sworn to your destruction? And since then, Hamas has engaged in a number of military attacks. It seems to happen every couple of years and continues to be blockaded as a result by both Egypt and Israel until Hamas comes around to, I guess, a more reasonable position. So this is a, a very important part of the story that's often left out as far as what happened on the Palestinian side. Much of what happens inside Palestinian politics is a kind of contest of one rival faction against the other. And right now Hamas is vying for the total leadership of the Palestinian people. Sad to say, this will actually win them points 
on that front. You hear the language of the occupation all the time, in particular in the aftermath of these attacks, when people have spoken up and said, whether it's explicit or subtle or indicative of approval, people saying things like, when you live in a prison, um, when you live under occupation, resistance is going to be violent. And I think that language of occupation is powerful for a lot of people who think, well, yeah, I mean, I guess if you're living under occupation, of course, you're eventually going to rebel and there's going to be violence in the streets. How does that language apply to the circumstances that we're in now? Or does it apply? It's certainly what you hear, that these attacks are justified because Gaza is under a blockade, the Palestinian people are under occupation. There are some simple things to point out. One I've already mentioned, Israel is completely out of the Gaza Strip. There is no Israeli inside the Gaza Strip, you know, up until now, perhaps, with the military operation. They were all pulled out in 2005 as part of a peace negotiation. Israel has also pulled out of the Sinai Peninsula, which it took in the Six-Day War in 1967 in exchange for peace. Israel has been very much on the record about giving up over 90% of the West Bank back to Palestinians if the Palestinians meet certain conditions. Even still, the West Bank is not occupied in the sense that I think most people think. There is a Palestinian authority that has its own government, its own security forces, its own stamps and electrical system and, and representation at the UN and, and diplomatic establishment. Uh, they control 95% of Palestinian citizens. There is not only one Palestinian state or proto-state in historic Palestine, there are two actually. The big question is, what is sufficient to quote unquote end the occupation? Israelis have it in their mind, especially today, that what Palestinians mean when they say occupation is any Jewish presence, any Jewish independence or sovereignty inside any part of the land of Israel, right? So Israeli in Tel Aviv, just as much an occupier as an Israeli in you know some kind of West Bank settlement. That was the official position of all Palestinians and virtually all Arabs up until the 1990s. There was a two-state solution on the table in the 1930s, the 1940s, both were rejected. And Israelis have internalized all of these events, you know, over a hundred years and come to believe, and I don't blame them, that there really isn't an answer to that question. The only end of occupation that Palestinians are looking for is a complete eradication of the state of Israel. Now, some Palestinians will disagree with that, other commentators, but when you hear the rhetoric coming out of the Arab world, particularly out of Palestinians, right, on their television channels, in their schools, broadcast by loudspeaker from their mosques, it's hard to walk away with anything but a feeling that this accusation that Israel's occupying their land is really just a way for them to justify this jihad, you know, whether it's a national one or a religious one, either way, Israelis feel like it's never going to be enough. Not only in 2005 did Israel withdraw from Gaza unilaterally, Israel forcibly, I've never seen an, another government do this, they had their men and women in uniform forcibly remove the residents, Jewish residents of Gaza Strip who were living in settlements in the Gaza Strip that had been settled there over multiple governments, governments of the left, governments of the right, over multiple um, decades. And these are people who did not want to leave. And the Israeli government said, you know, we're going to get out of Gaza entirely. We will systematically remove them one family at a time, house by house. And they were out. 
They've been out of Gaza. Now, Hamas comes in and takes over Gaza in 2007 in the way Robert talked about. And Israel said, you know what, we're not going to go to war with Gaza. So there have been these military skirmishes every couple of years over the last 20 years or so. But we'll learn to coexist with them on our border. And I think this weekend is the end of that. The idea that you can coexist with Hamas in Gaza on Israel's border. And if you raise the question, do the Palestinians have a legitimate grievance? Then the question is, what's Iran's role in this? We now know from reporting, which we all knew, but now it's more or less official based on reporting over the weekend, that Iran orchestrated all of this. Iran hosted a meeting, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps in Beirut a week ago today with Hamas, with Hezbollah, in which they coordinated this. Iran is celebrating this. Iran doesn't have any territorial claims in and around Israel. So you just have to start, why, why, is, why is Hezbollah care in the north? What's Hezbollah's role in all of this? If one wants to make the case that the Palestinians have legitimate grievances, you first have to ask the question, well, what are those grievances? Because Israel has been gone now for almost two decades. And two, all the other actors that are involved in orchestrating this and funding this and arming this, what is their territorial grievance? Dan, American Christians have supported Israel, of course, very strongly. I think there are a lot of them who are looking at this and saying, is there anything we can do? It's a great question. What I'm worried about, Russell, is this notion, this question of it's the time for diplomacy, quote unquote. It's a phrase. It's time for diplomacy, right? So typically, if you look at Israel's past defensive wars it's fought, there's a point at which in Lebanon and Lebanon war in, in uh, 2006, I think it was 32 days, 32 days, the U.S. government allowed Israel to do what it needed to do to respond to the threat from Hezbollah. And then at some point, the U.S. government said, enough, stop. In May of 2021, when there was a war in, with Gaza, or not a war, it wasn't like this kind of war. So let's call it an extended military skirmish. The Biden administration said, Israel, do what you need to do. We have your back. But then at some point, eight days, nine days, I don't remember what it was, in, they said, okay, enough. There is a point at which the West, the U.S., the international community says, okay, stop. Stop responding. It's, quote, the time for diplomacy. And when President Biden and Prime Minister Netanyahu spoke over the weekend, one of the things that the prime minister asked for was time and space. Give us time and space to try to eradicate this threat because this is unsustainable. We cannot coexist with this terrorist group on our border, we now know, like we have for the last couple of decades. So give us the time and space to do what we, we need to do. Now, that time and space is going to involve a lot of very uncomfortable images that we see from the region, not that what we've seen already isn't horrifying. And, and the images we will see from Gaza that will be bad when Israel responds will be humans, uh, uh, civilians suffering from ca as collateral damage, as, as casualties. They're not being targeted, unlike the way Hamas targeted Israeli civilians. And yet Israel, in order to do what it needs to do, will still need time and space, and it won't be a time for diplomacy. Israel is in a war. And I think the most important thing that the U.S. government needs to hear at the White House, at Congress, from American Jews, from American Christians, from you know anybody who cares about a free and independent and secure Israel and a strong Israel and cares about just basic decency in the world and not living in a world in which we just learn to tolerate and live with this kind of barbarism is to send a message to the government, to our government, continue to stand by Israel, give Israel the space and time it needs. At some point, there will be resources that the U.S. government is going to have to contemplate sending to Israel from Iron Dome to possibly other munitions, and there'll be assistance programs from the U.S. government that 
we will need citizens from all religious and ideological and partisan walks of life to send a message to their members of Congress and to the U.S. government and the administration saying this is a priority. There does seem to be a short attention span or a short tolerance for this. I mean, I think that's kind of what you're indicating there. The fighting is still going on on the ground in Israel yesterday, and you saw American politicians saying, we need to be thinking about a ceasefire and, you know, how do we negotiate a peace, which I just find remarkably grotesque, that, you know, that when bullets are in the air, they're speaking to Israel about a ceasefire. There were comments made today by Anthony Blinken to the, the prime minister of Turkey about the need for a ceasefire as well. Which he's since taken down. Yeah. So there was a little bit of a blowback against what Blinken said. But it just shows you how easily that just starts to seep in to the, you know what I mean? And, and I'm it, wondering, why do you think that is, right? What is it that drives that desire to sort of jump to the, because if we began, if, if Israel began negotiating a ceasefire right now, they'd be making concessions. You know, they've lost 900 lives. They've had And they have 130 at least hostages. hostages sitting there in Gaza. So imagine trying to negotiate when you, when, right. right. I'm just wondering if you have a sense or, or if any of you here have a sense, like what is the impulse that drives that? You know, it's hard to know what everyone's agenda is and everyone's incentive is. But what many countries around the world and especially in the region, we mentioned Turkey, they're less concerned about the human catastrophe that Israel has just experienced. They're not very concerned about Israel having a, a deterrent effect in the future. It's not that they don't want Israel to have a deterrent effect. It's just not their priority. What they basically want is peace and quiet in the region, stability, quote-unquote stability, quiet. Hmm. So they're like, you know, Israel's going to go in heavy, as it should, and that's going to escalate by, if you're if from the calculation of Turkey's political leadership or any other governments, and they're like, we just want, just let's bring the temperature down, let's just calm things down, let's, and all that means is just calming things down is fighting another day. It's not, it's, it's stopping fighting today in order to fight another day. That is to say, what, what on earth do these leaders think? I mean, here's an analogy, Mike. I mean, imagine after 9-11, imagine after 9-11, on November 12th, or November 13th, 2001, people went to President Bush and said, listen, it's time for diplomacy. Now's the time for diplomacy. I know you're getting ready to respond. I know Al-Qaeda is being, there's a safe haven for Al-Qaeda that just unleashed this hell on your country. And I know they're being housed, protected, safeguarded by the Taliban in Afghanistan. But it's actually, we want to move to diplomacy. I mean, that I'm even saying it is, is, it's like laughable. It's like preposterous. No country that intends to exist as a standalone independent nation that has its basic security that it wants to be able to rely on, could in the face of what just happened, no country could say, yeah, but you know what, now let's move to negotiations. Negotiate over what? Hmm. What are we negotiating over? Russell, you wrote this weekend about the need for moral clarity for Christians in the face of this, because I think that impulse, that's an impulse Christians wrestle with as well. I mean, we were taught to turn the other cheek. We want to love our enemies, bless those who persecute us, et cetera. How should Christians who are thinking about these things and wrestling with those tensions Think about a moment like this and what we're seeing in Israel. Well, think about Romans 12 and Romans 13. Romans 12 is speaking to us personally as followers of Christ, saying, do not strike back, do not have vengeance. And then Romans 13 is talking about the responsibility of the state to protect its citizens and to uh, punish evildoers, as, as the Apostle Paul puts it. There is a state responsibility for the security uh, of its people. 
And so one of the things that I really worry about in times like this is hearing people putting a, well, yes, uh, this was bad. Nobody's defending that. But, and then having some sort of a, a moral equity between these two situations in the same way that uh, I was when people would say, well, you know, nobody's for January 6th insurrection, but, you know, you need to understand that people are angry. We need to have a clear understanding of what is moral and immoral and uh, kidnapping, raping, murdering, destroying, targeting innocent civilians is immoral. Robert, it does bring up another question that I wanted to ask you about. There are Christians in this region. There are churches in this region. There are churches on both sides of the geographic lines on there. What's happening in the church there? How do Christians experience this conflict, and what are they saying? Thank you for asking that question. They're often forgotten about. They are uh, about 1% of Palestinians in the West Bank and uh, Gaza. Only a small number of those are, are evangelical. Even inside Israel... Uh, the state of Israel, they're only you know one or two percent. So this is talking about a very small population. This conflict, this Israeli-Palestinian conflict, is primarily a Jewish-Muslim conflict, just demographically. And so Christians are, in general, put aside this latest incident, feel like they they really don't belong. Right? One friend put it to me this way. He said, "To Jews, I'm an Arab, and to Arabs, meaning in his mind Muslims, I'm a Christian." So, like, what am I? Where do I fit here? It's a very strange position for them to be in. Like many Christians in the region, their strategy is usually to just keep their head down. Uh, there is a very small Christian community in the Gaza Strip. They're now, I mean, it's, it's in the hundreds. It's, it's extremely small. Most of them have gotten out, as you can imagine, being under the rule of Hamas. They are, like everyone, trapped inside this this strip with this, Islamist group in charge determined to provoke this bloody war with Israel. And they're no doubt in a lot of fear right now. Uh, you don't typically find Christians joining Hamas. Inside Israel, you have a, a wider range of people. You have Arab Christians, you have Jews who profess belief in Jesus. You have people from Russia, guest workers from Thailand and Philippines and places like that. It's, uh, for all of them, also a very unnerving time, a feeling of helplessness. There's not a whole lot that you can do if you're a Christian apart from pray. Those um, Israeli Christians who are serving in the IDF, and I know some of them, have been called up just like everybody else, and they are now on their way to Gaza, if not uh, already there. And they are, as you can imagine, having seen what's happened to Christian communities around the Near East, around the Middle East, are, are very confident that as, as bad as things may be in Israel politically or, I don't know, socially, you pick, pick a grievance, it is nothing compared to the situation for Christians anywhere else, right? I mean, people tell me, this is my country. I don't have any other place. Thank God I'm here and not in Lebanon or Egypt or somewhere else in a country that will actually mm. strike back against this type of religiously motivated violence. So they're torn, but they're very, they're very aware that they are in some sense protected and are, are very determined to do whatever they can to make sure that uh, Israel is safe, even at the cost of their own sons and daughters. Is there a vision for a safer 
Israel and a safer Palestine, a safer Gaza, a safer West Bank on the other side of this? Or does the trajectory of this just indicate things are going to get much worse before they get better? I think you have to answer that question, Mike. You got to raise the lens, expand the, the aperture and ask the question. It's not so much about what Israel's vision is for the Palestinian people, because Israel has repeatedly tried throughout its history to help the Palestinians establish a Palestinian state. The question is not so much about the Palestinian leadership, which I think tragically between Hamas and the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank has suffered from horrendous leadership uh, of their own people. The question is, and that's why I said expand the aperture, what does the region want? What is, what is Saudi Arabia's vision for the Palestinians? What is Egypt's? What is Turkey's? What is Iran's? What do these countries want for the Palestinians, are they are they just being used as pawns in a war against Israel? That's certainly what we know very real time that Iran has been doing is using the Palestinians as pawns in their war against Israel. It's not about the Palestinian war against Israel. It's about the Iranian war against Israel. And the Palestinians are sadly foot soldiers in that war. What's their vision? Now, I do believe that the Gulf states do have a vision for an independent Palestinian state. They also want to move themselves with their own deepening of ties with Israel. That's what we saw with the Abraham Accords. That's what we saw up until now, at least, that with the, nor the path to normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel. They want their own deepening ties with Israel. They want to end the Israeli-Arab conflict. The one thing they won't do is let Hamas have a veto on any agreement they reach with Israel. So they have been moving on to deepen ties, which is great. But whether they're deepening ties with Israel or they're hostile to Israel, like Iran, the question for all of them is, what is your vision? I'm sad to say it's not an easy question for Israel or people who are involved with Israel or involved with U.S.-Israel policy to answer. Yeah, I would, I would say that it's very important, and I think especially as people of faith, that we grasp or, or at least wrestle with the spiritual, the religious dimensions of this. What I mean by that is recognizing that there are people in this region who number in the millions, possibly tens or, or even more of millions, who on point of dogma, right, according to their religious doctrines, cannot tolerate the existence of a Jewish state. And there are people who lead that discourse and uh, you know, develop that theology, the leaders of, of that movement, that worldview. And then there are many, many, many people who don't really know that much about it, can't articulate it, nevertheless feel it very strongly to the point of passing out candies and celebrating while, while watching the images that made all of our stomach sick, right? That is a reality that I do not think has ever really taken root among most Americans, most Westerners. And I, I'm saying this not just traveling around Israel and the West Bank and all that, but like the whole region. And I see this all over the place. And until you really wrap your head around that and understand who Hamas is, just taking them at their word, right? Who Iran is, you really can't think about any answer to the question you ask. What is a safe? What do you do when there's another side, a huge side that is on principle dedicated to making sure you are not safe? Now, Israel's response has been essentially containment until now. And, and Dan mentioned, you know, the response to Hamas was, look, we'll find some kind of modus vivendi, we'll make it work. Okay, we'll have to hit them here and there to keep things in a certain uh, level. But overall, like, we'll make it work, right? There's this principle in Israel, the you know, IDF doctrine called uh, Kisuach Adeshe, 
which is like mowing the grass, right? So the grass gets long every now and then, there's gotta be some kind of war to degrade military capability. It's the best answer so far Israel's had to dealing with a religiously motivated enemy. I don't know what will change now, right? Will Israel feel like the only way to live in safety is to just you know, go for broke in Gaza and even do more to go at the head of the snake in Tehran? I don't know, but as the US, as people on the outside, it's very important for us to recognize that this is the actual dynamic and only from recognition of that dynamic can we then try to craft some strategy. These are very dark days and, um, and they're probably gonna get darker, okay? So I woke up to news on Saturday morning Saturday midday, 300 Israelis dead. Shocking number. Population of eight and a half, nine million people. Someone both in Israeli security circles and U.S. policy circles later that day told me by tomorrow it'll be 600. Sure enough, it was not only 600, it's now beyond 600. Then sitting here recording today, just to give you the macro and the micro, the macro is an hour before we recorded, news came out that uh, a kibbutz in the south, they just found 100 I think over 100 bodies that they just, no one had accounted for. And the images are unbelievable. Uh, not just of the images of the bodies, but of these Hamas terrorists going door to door, the videos of them. And then while we're sitting here, literally, while we're sitting here recording this podcast, I got a text message saying, it's a photo of a, an Israeli soldier who's praying with uh, tefillin on. And out of respect for the family, I'm not going to mention the, the name. He's a soldier wearing tefillin and a yarmulke young cousin of a, of a close friend of, of mine in Jerusalem, who's a venture capitalist, just fell in battle on the border. Mm. So these stories are gonna be going and going and going. Let's just be open about that. It's just, it's, it's going to be bad for a while and it's gonna feel really, really dark. I would say if the strength of Israel, how Israel will get through this is obviously it's, it's military acumen, which obviously, which people are questioning after the last few days, but it's historically it's military acumen. If you look at Arab intelligence, the Arab world, that's the parts of the Arab world that have historically been hostile to Israel, they've typically focused on their intelligence when you see the leaks. They focused on four areas, why Israel was so hard to conquer. One is Israel's military. Two is its economic power, its technological power, its, you know, startup nation. Three, it's support from the United States, its partnership with the United States, that rock-solid bond with the United States, which is hard to crack, and for the unity of its people. And I think the unity of its people have been in question over these last nine months. And I and I think that the the leaders, as I said earlier, in the region miscalculated and thought, oh, Israel's divided. Now one of those four pillars is, is broken or is unreliable, and it, now is the time to strike. The world is turbulent. Israel has been divided, but it is incredibly resilient. And its people are incredibly unified, and there's an enormous amount of solidarity that I think you will see rising in very moving ways in the weeks and months ahead. I think that's well put. Well, Dan Senor, Robert Nicholson, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation on The Bulletin. We will be right back. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. 
Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast, Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But hey, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. There are a lot of people who think that Christians care about the Middle East simply because of some particular view of Bible prophecy, and that's not true. Christians across the theological spectrum support the people in the Middle East, Israel, and care about Palestinian people who are being harmed by Hamas as well, care about those who are in Saudi Arabia and Iran. Think of all of the Christians in Iran that we don't know about right now who are undergoing a brutal regime. Zechariah 14 uh, talks about Jerusalem being surrounded in battle, women being raped, and uh, the Lord fighting on behalf of Israel. Daryl Bach there are a lot of people who will say American Christians are the most supportive people of Israel, particularly in a time of peril. Uh, why is that? Well, there's uh, theological reasons for it for some. They are committed to the idea that the Abrahamic covenant teaches that God will bless Israel, Abraham's seed, by which is meant the ethnic seed, not just those who are in Christ and that God keeps his commitments to those to whom he makes them. So he's going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you often comes with that. The idea that God is supportive of his people, even over time and ultimately eschatologically, is something that drives a hope for Israel in the program and plan of God. If this were a fulfillment of Bible prophecy, how would we know? Well, that's a great question. I mean, we've been through this multiple times in my lifetime, the Six-Day War and uh, just slightly before I was born, the actual founding of Israel itself. 
What's interesting is, is that people were predicting that Israel would become a nation in the land long before she was ever close to being in that position on the basis of theological argument. So some people, whenever these uh, outbreaks happen, think, well, maybe this is it. Of course, the problem is, is that if they're right, this might be it, but also it might not be it. So that's the trick. The disciples asked an interesting question of Jesus right after the resurrection, and that was, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? This is in Acts 1. And he didn't say back to them, oh, you know what, that's a terrible question. You need to understand what I really have been doing here. What he says is that this is something that's the fathers uh, to determine. It doesn't reject the premise, but it does say it's not your business to know. And so in the meantime, I'm giving you an assignment, go into the world and make disciples. And so that's what the church is supposed to be focused on in the midst of even something like this, even though it's possible that as we keep watching, think about the things that God may be doing, that this could at least be it. Now, as I say that, there are other Christians who don't think that this is in the cards at all and that this doesn't apply to ethnic Israel, that the promises made in Abraham are now applied to Abraham's seed, which includes Jews and Gentiles all Christians, and that that promise is now focused on the church and the church alone with no eschatological hope for Israel. So the difference between Christians has to do with how they view Israel's hope in the future and what comes with it. Mike, there are a lot of people in the secular world who assume that uh, American evangelical Christians all support Israel because they believe the Bible prophecy charts that say that uh, the return of Christ is imminent and that crisis leads to a return of Christ. That's not true at all. What are you seeing, both of you, in terms of the differences generationally when it comes to looking at world events through the lens of prophecy? Mm -hmm. It's interesting you put it that way because I definitely think my generation kind of, I grew up watching my parents just devour the Left Behind series, for instance. I can remember at like seven, eight years old, listening to tapes from someone who'd come and spoken at our church. That The guy was explaining how the mark on Mikhail Gorbachev's forehead was, you know, the, the mark yeah, of the beast. And there were all these... Yeah, all these one-to-one symbols, yeah. and and it was, you know, and I loved it as a kid, as this, like, mystery to solve and all of this. And then, of course, like everyone does, like, you grow up and you react against your parents and you find another way of understanding things oftentimes. I do think there's definitely a bit of a reactionary spirit in my generation that sort of rolls their eyes at the whole prospect. And, in fact, I do wonder at times when I see folks in my generation who are generally, you know, less sympathetic to Israel in political circumstances. How much of that is a reaction to, well, the only reason white evangelicals care about Israel is because of some convoluted Bible prophecy book that they read when they were a kid. I think it's an important thing for us to talk about, both in terms of what <laughs> what reasonable scholars of the Bible actually think about, who hold to views that modern-day Israel has a significance. Um, what do they actually believe? What do they actually care about? What does it actually matter? And being able to distinguish between that and those who are trying to genetically engineer perfect red, red heifers yeah. in yeah, Texas. Yeah, I think there is some difference generationally. I think the younger generation, generally speaking, is more sensitive to issues of justice in the older generation, and they have seen what it means for um, 
for the Palestinians to be confined within the space around an effect a wall. A lot of these places of conflict are places that people know from the maps in their Bibles, at the back of their Bibles. Should that make any difference to us when we're looking at this? I think the land of Israel and the history of Israel and the history of Israel is a precursor to the idea that Jesus, you know, came to be a Messiah for Israel, etc., is an important part of a Christian heritage. Anyone who's made a trip to the Middle East out of their Christian conviction and has gone through it will usually refer to it as one of the great experiences they've had in life to actually look at the places that they've been reading about, you know, in some cases, reading about all their lives. So there is this emotional and spiritual and historical attachment that all believers have to the land in one way or another. And in a sense, the world has that attachment to that part of the world as well. That's why it means so much to everybody. I mean, if you're a Muslim, that's an important part of the world. If you're a Jew, that's an important part of the world. And this is not taking place in any place. This is taking place in a very special place to a lot of people, which is, again, another reason why there's so much invested in what's going on. It's interesting, as I sit here and think about this, I'm reminded of one of my favorite works by Eugene Peterson called The Contemplative Pastor. There's an extended section in it where he talks about the weird dichotomy that few pastors that he ran into over the years were fond of poetry, enjoyed reading poetry. He essentially says, look, you look at how much of the the scriptures, particularly obviously the Psalms and the prophets, but also the apocalyptic texts of the the scriptures, uh, images of the eschaton, it's all this very deeply poetic language. As I hear you talk, Dr. Bach, I, I, I just think about my own experiences in the Holy Land and what those meant to me. I mean, I had some profoundly important experiences in my life visiting over there over the years. There is something about the language of Scripture and the language of place and the poetic language of, of Scripture that's so important, I think, for shaping our spiritual imaginations. I say that because I think the way Christians think about Israel, modern Israel, when I think about Christians of my generation being maybe nervous about prophetic scripture or thinking about eschatology or any of that stuff because of what what we may have encountered at different phases of our lives, I think we're really impoverished if we don't immerse ourselves in those stories and in that language, if we don't think about those places. You know, even if it's not so much to try and sort of draw hard lines about this is what I understand this to mean or that to mean, but to allow the spiritual imagination to be informed by the text, the images of the text, the stories of the text, the places of the text, because they are tied to a place. They are tied to a land in a profound way that I think we do miss out on if we don't immerse ourselves in them. I couldn't agree more that these are important images and and we live with them and we live with them both in their poetics as well as in their more direct uh, references. And of course, the things that are being discussed when we deal with the resolution and the hope for peace and the aspiration of that in the midst of a chaotic, dysfunctional, fallen world, apocalyptic texts are all over that space. That's the challenge of what we are thinking about and wrestling with here. And when we ask, so what does the Bible have to say, particularly about a particular circumstance that we find ourselves in and whether it's reflective of that? And of course, the other issue here is Sometimes the Bible's cyclical. In other words, it refers to something that happens on a repeated basis as opposed to just a singular example. And so when we drop ourselves into that world, that makes life even more interesting for this discussion in some ways. The important thing 
is we don't know when Jesus is going to return. We don't know any of those things. Jesus told us we wouldn't know those things. But what we do know is this, and that is that we ought to speak about these issues with moral clarity. We ought to know what's right and what's wrong. And we ought to pray. We ought to pray for defeat to the people who would murder and kill and rape. And we ought to pray also ultimately for peace. We can do that this coming Sunday morning. And from now until then, you've been listening to The Bulletin. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick and Mike Cosper. It's produced by Clarissa Mall and Matt Stevens. Post-production by David Lachance. Our art for this episode is by Rick Shooks. Music by Dan Phelps. Social media by Kate Lucky. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back in just a couple days. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.